Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Breakfast at Tiffany's. Breakfast at Tiffany's was written by Truman Capote and was published in 1958. And the film adaptation, which came out in 1961, was directed by Blake Edwards. And this is Ian's first time seeing Breakfast at Tiffany's. Never seen it. Never seen it before. So it was very interesting. It's a classic. It is. And uh, to kind of uh, get us in the mood, I made us uh, a cocktail, a white angel, which (laughs) was described in the book as half vodka and half gin. With not a whisper of vermouth in it. Nope. (laughs) Yeah, specifically no vermouth. Yeah. Which I wonder if that speaks to like the kind of cocktails they drank at the time. Were they very like martini, vermouth heavy type drinks? Maybe. Because I mean, cocktails have a history of like kind of certain things coming in and out of fashion, right? Yeah. Um, My cocktail review is that it tastes exactly how you probably (laughs) think it tastes. It's very gin forward. Very gin. It just very alcoholic. (laughs) Very alcoholic. It's getting us in the mood to discuss Holly Golightly. Uh, cafe society girl, the uh, upper echelons and the fancy people of the Upper East Side of New York City in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Yes, we're like socialites herself, just sitting back <laughs> drinking our fancy cocktails. Yes. <laughs> it is funny because, you know, I've never seen this movie. And when I was creating the episode announcement post for Instagram, I just looked up photos from the movie And the one that kept coming up was uh, Audrey Hepburn in her very classic uh, black dress with, like, the pearl choker. And she's just, like, eating a pastry (laughs) in a window. And I was like, this is kind of a weird image for this movie. But I'm like, but it's the one that keeps coming up. So I'm like, I guess I'll use it. And then it wasn't until we, like, put the movie on and it started. And I'm like, oh, that's the window at Tiffany's. And then I was like, oh, my God. This is the... (laughs) This is the titular breakfast at Tiffany's. It's a great beginning to the movie, I think. It is. Like, I think the cinematography of it's really beautiful. And actually kind of, it almost made me disappointed in the way the rest of the film was shot. Mm -hmm. Not that it's shot poorly by any means, but something about this opening, like, especially the streets are, like, totally empty. And it's kind of got a really interesting camera movement to it and the way it's shot. Uh, I, I don't know. It felt very contemporary. Yeah. In a really cool way. And I just feel like the rest of the movie didn't quite have that aesthetic. Yeah, it really felt like it was going for a vibe and it, it stuck with it. And then the rest of the movie is like, OK, forget that. Like now we're over <laughs> here doing a different yeah. thing. Well, and it's also very kind of quiet and almost contemplative. Yeah. Like meditative Saying or something. something about her character, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's one of the only really kind of quiet moments of the film, I would say, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, The book begins in a different way. We actually have the person who is writing this story is the main character, and he has no name in the book. So it's just a no-name writer man who lives above Holly and becomes her friend and and writes about her. Uh, In the movie, he has a name. It's Paul. So we're just going to call him Paul throughout the whole episode because it's easier than saying, what's his name? No name writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so we actually get a kind of flash forward, or I should say the the story's told in almost like a um, reflective memory type way. 
And in the present, it is Paul showing up to a bar that he and Holly used to go to. And I guess, like, the bartender used to take messages for them because nobody had phones at this point. And uh, the bartender has heard word of where Holly might be. Yes. And it's this kind of whole story about this photographer who lived in the apartment with them, was in Africa, and he saw a wood carving (laughs) that a guy made that looked just like Holly. And it turns out, after managing to, like, communicate with this guy, that uh, it was Holly that she showed up. Like, this white woman and two white men that she was with, like, in the middle of Africa, they showed up and... Passed through the village. She had this, like, fling with this guy who carved wood, and now he was, like, carving her face. (laughs) I'm like, this is all very odd. (laughs) Yeah, and now the bartender's like, I called you to give you news of Holly. But, you know, from this piece of, like, setting here, we know that... It's far in the future and that the the writer is reflecting back on his time with Holly, which was in the past, and that she's not there anymore. So obviously we know that the story is going to (laughs) be heading in a very different direction than the movie right from the beginning. Yes. Uh, So then, you know, the book kind of goes back in time to when Paul first met Holly because he moved into a brownstone in the upper east side of uh, New York City living above Holly. And so we kind of get this general impression of her at the start before he really knows her in the book. And in the film, we get like a scene of them interacting where he ends up in her apartment. I kind of forget the context. She's letting him in. Yeah. And then she, he kind of like steps in. Oh, he needs to use her phone. That's right. Okay. Yes. And she's rushing around because she's getting ready to go. Uh, to, to leave for somewhere. And so we kind of get learn a lot of information about her early on. Yeah. And Holly is this beautiful young woman who is this socialite, is a part of this kind of fancy society. She's going out on the town. I mean, when we see her in the movie in the beginning, it's early morning and she's dressed to the nines, right? Yes. She has not been to bed. She is just getting her breakfast on her way back from a night out, right? And then we see her coming into the apartment. A man is chasing her. Like, why'd you leave me, honey? Like, let <laughs> oh, me yeah, in. Yeah. You know, and we have a similar scene in the book that's like this with a man who is trying to let get Holly to let him into her apartment. So, you know, we discover that Holly is kind of a call girl, is kind of an escort. Not really, though. Uh, it's more like... Well, she's not like a prostitute. Yeah. Uh, it's more that she gets paid to kind of go out with men, be kind of public with them, get dinner, get drinks, kind of party with them. And the sex is like... Maybe something that'll happen if she actually likes the guy, but it's by no means like part of the deal. Yeah, even though a lot of the men uh, by the end of the night, especially when they're drunk, are like trying to like sleep with her, trying to break into her apartment, basically. Yeah, there's this thing in the book that <laughs> Holly kept mentioning and people kept mentioning, which was $50 for the powder room. And Ian and I were like, what the hell does $50 for the powder room <laughs> what mean? What does that like, mean? Is this drugs is this like code for sex like what is it and so we did some research and uh truman capote has said because he's had many questions about this that you know holly isn't isn't a prostitute per se like you were saying it's more like these men would give her money for a cab give her money for the powder room and it was kind of understood that these were like little gifts for her company but i still don't get the like the phrasing of that 
$50 for the powder well, room? Well, you, you would pay the powder room attendant a little bit of money, right? Oh. And so maybe she's like, I'm going to the powder room. Do you have any change? But it's not just like a couple bucks. It's like... It's like $50. Same okay. thing for a taxi, right? Like, oh, I need a taxi. It wouldn't be $50 for a taxi, especially back then, right? Right. Okay. I didn't even... I wasn't even thinking about like paying an attendant. I'm like, where does money <laughs> factor into any of this? Like, hey, I have to use the bathroom. Give me $50. Yeah. I think it's situations that normally like would require a little bit of money and it's like a very sexy, beautiful woman that you're seen with being like, oh, darling, can you give me some money for this? And he right. wants to seem like a big man and give her a lot. Okay, that that makes much more sense. Like, I, <laughs> I just didn't understand why... It would just it's just like the most random thing to be like, hey, I have to go do this really normal thing. Give me money for yeah, it. Yeah, you know those vending machines in there? They only <laughs> yeah. take 50s. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's like a phrase that keeps coming up over and over. $50 for the powder room. Yeah, so they, they have this meeting and Holly in the movie is very kind of all over the place, is very eccentric and flighty. Um, like Ian said, she's getting ready to go somewhere. She's kind of peppering in all these details about her life. We hear about her cat, who doesn't have a name because they don't own each other. <laughs> yes. It's just cat. Um, we have her apartment, which it looks like she just moved in, but she's been there for a long time. I really love the design and look of the apartment in the film. It's like a kind of tacky plastic couch. Uh, that just does not fit the setting at all. Like, the kitchen is sparse. There's nothing in there. Like, some boxes around. It's just, like, almost looks like a flop house, right? Yeah. Like, there's just nothing in there. But she has these big parties there, right? Yeah. Like, her home is almost just, like, uh, another area to meet other people and, like, to host parties. And it's not even for a place for her to be comfortable or live in. No. And we also learn that she is obviously handling a lot of cash from, like, going out with these men, but she's also, like, not very good with her money. She's spending it on, like... I mean, we know she's spending it on, like, uh, jewelry and, like, good clothing and that kind of thing, but then also just seems to not, like... Like, spending it on other things that, like, don't matter or aren't good investments to begin with. Yes. And then we hear about her weekly trips to visit Sally Tomato in Sing Sing Prison. <laughs> I I wrote down when she first mentioned this Sally Tomato. And I was like, surely I misunderstood that name. And it's something less crazy than Sally Tomato. It is not. It is Sally Tomato. Yes. Um accused mobster that's why he's in prison yeah he got uh he, he was a mobster but he got thrown in prison for like taxes which i'm like is this uh a stand-in for al capone i'm like is this supposed to be like al capone kind of because like they got they famously got him on taxes when <laughs> he was like known for way worse things than that mm -hmm. uh but yeah so she visits him every thursday and is posing as his niece just to like get in and see him and it's this just weird thing where she just goes and is kind of like giving him some company, just like a pretty girl, like there to like meet him. And he is a lawyer who pays her like $50 a week for every time that she does this. Yeah. And then she also has to give the lawyer uh, a weather report just to prove that she was there so she can get her money. And she's just like, oh, yeah, he always says like the craziest things. And like it's snowing in Louisiana and like there's storms over Spain and things like that. Yeah, it's supposed to be to prove that she went and visited him. But I'm like, surely the lawyer could talk to him and know. Yeah. Uh, but so 
that's the explanation. And I think we get a better explanation later on as to what the codes are for. (laughs) (laughs) So Holly's visiting Sally Tomato in prison, and that's her, you know, Thursday activity. And at this time in the movie, we find out that Paul, the writer who lives above her in this building and just moved in, has uh, someone who's also paying him to be a writer <laughs> and just uh, hang out all day in his apartment and do nothing. Yeah, he has his own lady friend with deep pockets. He also has someone giving him $50 for the powder room, as well, you say. <laughs> well, it's so funny because he says, this is my, like, decorator. Yes. And then we see his apartment later and it's horrendous it's god awful. it looks terrible and i'm like is she actually also his decorator or is that all a code or, i mean like she did decorate front? it did she okay she says in the movie when we first meet her like oh i kind of went all out let me know if you don't like anything okay. like you can change it i forgot in retrospect <laughs> if she actually did anything so she did decorate oh, his apartment god. um but it's this woman that is only referred to in the movie as 2E, like the number 2 and the letter E. So I don't know if that stands for an apartment number. Yeah, I have no idea. I didn't even know that's what they were saying. I thought it was like 2D or something like that. I know. I had to look it up later because it sounded like Trudy or something. But she's a married woman and she's having this affair with Paul and kind of subsidizing his writer lifestyle. And I know that this was pretty common back then. I mean, in like the 40s and before that, especially that writers... Not the uh, affair part, I don't think, but that writers would kind of be subsidized by rich benefactors. Mm, That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so they would, I think a lot of rich people wanted to feel like they had, that they were promoting artists. Oh, yeah. And people with talent and show them off at parties and things like that. So they would give them money. But this relationship is obviously, you know, sexual as well. So I I do kind of like that Paul and Holly in the movie sort of have this in common. Yes. Right? Where they're kind of using people a bit and getting by to try to figure their lives out with the money of others. Yeah, both kind of ingratiating themselves to the wealthy in terms of Holly, it feels like she's trying to kind of ascend into that stratosphere of wealth in yeah. society, whereas Paul, it feels like more of a uh, a temporary situation. Like, he doesn't always want to be doing this. Yeah, we find out that he has written short stories, but is working on a novel. And so while he's w- working on this novel, 2E is sort of financially supporting him during this time. But yeah, you're right. It kind of seems like he's trying to get back into the writing groove. He hasn't written in a long time. But I do find this connection between money and sex interesting with the two of them. I think it rounds out, because this is, like we said, only in the film, yeah. this, this relationship he has with 2E. I feel like it rounds out a lot of the themes of the book that were already present while giving Paul a bit of a deeper character mm-hmm. and plot going on that kind of parallels Holly's in a really nice way. Yeah. We have a scene here where Holly uh, sneaks into his apartment <laughs> through the fire escape. And there's a similar scene in the book, and this is actually when they kind of have more of their meeting and um, conversation with each other. But she's trying to escape a man who's gotten a little too handsy in her apartment. Yeah, she literally leaves her own apartment. And it's not the last time that she'll do this just to escape someone or like a situation. So she sneaks up the fire escape. This is where she sees 2E leaving and like leaving money on the dresser. So she knows that 
kind of the situation going on with Paul. Yeah. And she just like sneaks in to his room, like half dressed and is like, hey, there's a man downstairs. Can I just like hang out here for a little bit? <laughs> and this is in the book, their first real scene together, like where they really get to talk and to know each other. Whereas like we said in the film, they've had one previous scene to this. And I find I, th- I found this scene really interesting, especially in the movie, because I felt like they kind of both had a wit and a banter and like the dialogue was well written. Yeah. Where they're kind of, you know, skirting around subjects. He's kind of talking about his writing and there's kind of a playfulness between them. And so I thought like this scene and this dynamic worked really well. Yeah. There's also something, though, that was like nagging me as we watched it. And I'm like. She is such a manic pixie dream girl. <laughs> like, and, and in this scene especially, it felt so... I mean, we got that a little bit in the first scene because she doesn't know this guy, but she's like, oh yeah, just come into my apartment. I'm just getting dressed. Hey, can you find my shoes under my bed? Yeah. And kind of like immediately being familiar with him. And now we get that even further. Like in this story, or in this scene, uh, they're having a drink and I don't know why, but she just dumps it in the house plant. Yeah. I'm like, why? Why, why did you why just do, do that? that? <laughs> and then she's like, you remind me a lot of my brother, Fred. Can I call you Fred? And he's like, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, very, I guess. Dream girl. And then she's like, can I just like crawl into bed with you? Like, don't worry. <laughs> I just want to sleep. And yeah. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Like, it's just, it's so much. And I mean, I think there's obviously elements of her character that are interesting, uh, but this whole kind of scattered, I mean, like there's a sense of truth to it where I'm like, yeah, I know there are people like this who are very scattered and like kind of just flying by the seat of their pants, kind of don't have a plan for themselves and maybe ingratiate themselves to strangers very quickly or like, you know, become familiar with them. But I don't know. It just felt very like a trope we've seen a lot with like female characters. Yeah. Yeah. And it's tough to say because a lot of this is based on the book. And in a lot of ways, I feel like the book is painting this really interesting character. Right. But I think with the movie having a much more romantic angle on it. Yeah. It just inherently makes it feel like more manic pixie dream girl, right? Yeah. Because she's like giving his life meaning and fulfilling him. He starts writing again in the movie. Maybe because of her, maybe not. That's really funny because like in the film, I I did feel like these characters have a romance developing. And I felt like they were inevitably going to end up together. Whereas in the book reading it, I almost had the opposite feeling. Yeah. Like there's definitely. Well, you know from the beginning that they're not together. Well, that's true. You do know that. Like you might not be actively thinking about it. But I even feel like the tone of it. Like, yes, there's a there's a lot of sexual tension and chemistry between them throughout the story. But you also just feel like this isn't going to work out. Yeah. Like, even though you know that kind of from the beginning, like I also just think in the writing you get that vibe more. And I'm like, is that just the difference between your expectations of a movie from this era versus like writing. Yeah. I don't know. And another perspective to think about as well is the fact that, I mean, Truman Capote was very openly gay or at least as open as you could be at this time um, when he was most prolific in like the fifties and sixties. So, you know, is there a quality to his writing where it feels more platonic, right? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of scenes that could be very sexual. Like there's a scene where he's like rubbing body oil on her back (laughs) and she turns to him like with her boobs out and it's just like 
he's not really phased by it. Like, they're having an argument. Like, that's the thing he's upset about. And then there's a scene later where he's, like, soaking in the tub and she's just, like, sitting with him. Yeah. So I feel like he's putting them in these situations that should be sexy but just aren't. And there's almost this, like very platonic quality to their relationship. Yeah, see, the the oiling her up scene, <laughs> I did feel <laughs> like a, a tension there because he's like frustrated by her and he thinks about like hitting her, but like with how she's laying, you just think about like him spanking her or yeah. like hitting her ass, which like, yeah, there's like a an anger involved, but it still feels like there's like sex tied into that. Yeah. But other scenes, like you said, when he's just like naked in the bath, you don't feel like a sexual tension at all. Mm -hmm. So I I think there's kind of a push and pull with that where it's more present at some points than others. Yeah. It is interesting to think about though, and in the presentation and expectations and how that affects your perceptions of the characters and and their motivations and, and feeling like she's a little bit more of a manic pixie dream girl in the movie, maybe because there's more of a romance in it. Yeah. Yeah. Or that's like kind of maybe just what you expect more yeah. like from a movie of this time. Yeah. I don't know. Um, there is a scene, though, where after she falls asleep in his bed, she has a nightmare mm-hmm. of. <laughs> oh, this is the Fred. most obvious nightmare. <laughs> I know. I was one and two in the movie. You have no sense of how much time passes. Yeah. Where it feels like she laid down and two minutes later, she's like, no, Fred, wait, what are you doing? No. Don't. No. Uh. <laughs> I'm like, what time is it? Because he's still awake. Yeah. And I'm like, I feel like no time has passed. Yeah. And I don't know if we mentioned it before, but she has talked to Paul about her brother, Fred, and says, yeah, you know, I ran away from home when I was 15 and I've been on my own ever since. And uh, my brother, Fred's really the only person I care about. He uh, is... Mentally slow, we're led to believe, and she has a very protective nature towards him. And she talks to Paul about how she hopes to save up so she can buy some land one day and that they they can have like a horse farm and live together. Is it implied that he's slow in the movie? Yeah. Okay. I'm. I think I maybe missed that. Uh, because in the like I got that in the book, but mm-hmm. a lot of dialogue in this film is very fast and like sometimes hard to like. It is know what they're even talking about. And I think because I had already finished the book by the time we watched the movie, oh, okay. it was easier for me to pick up on because yeah. a lot of it is straight. Oh lo- yes. Well, and in the book, a lot of the dialogue are just and I like it gives you a sense of the character. Like, a lot of the dialogue, especially from Holly, are just these long, <laughs> long stream of She's consciousness. going on and Rambling, on. like, just, like, a whole page of solid text with, like, no paragraph breaks, right? Like, she'll just be going off on an idea. Mm-hmm. And I think you can have better time to digest that reading it. But yeah. sometimes in the movie, like, at one point she's talking about, like, do you ever get the angry reds? And he's like, it's not like the blues. And she's like, no, blues are when you're sad and angry reds are when, like, you're in... <laughs> I, I didn't hear what they said. She's just talking about reds and blues. And I'm like, are they talking about pills? Like, what's she talking about? And then they kept mentioning the reds. Yeah. And you had to explain it to me. And when I read it in the book, I'm like, okay, I get it. But there's other p- parts of the movie where they're just rapidly explaining things, either backstories or ideas or characters or thoughts. And like, it's just so quick. And sometimes it'll be a really abstract idea. Yeah. And I just am like, I'm a little lost. You're like, what's happening? I have no idea. Should we take a moment and discuss 
one of the more controversial aspects. <laughs> and by more, I mean by far the most controversial aspect of this entire movie. Yes, Mr. Yunioshi, who is just a photographer in the book. Yep. And took photos of the carving in Africa and is mentioned right at the beginning and like never again. Yeah, he's. they were like, yeah, he's uh, a photographer and he's Japanese. Yeah. And he would get annoyed with Holly like buzzing him to get into the apartment and uh, throwing loud parties. Um, but that's it. That's Mr. Yunioshi. Yeah. In a nutshell in the book. And then we have this horrific caricature, yellow face portrayal uh, by Mickey Rooney. And it's horrifying. It's uh, it, I mean, I think at this point it's like really infamous. It is. And you were saying uh, that like when the movie came out, people were like, this isn't. I know it's 1961 and that we still haven't, like, you know, exactly become woke yet, but this is really bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, reading about this, certain people were like, oh, it was the producers, the writers, it was the director. I mean, there were a lot of people that let this happen. Let's just say that. I mean, at the end of the day, the only person who can't pass blame at all is Mickey Rooney himself. <laughs> Who sat in a makeup chair and got full yellow face and did the worst, most offensive caricature. And on top of that, it's just like, like all of his parts are just slapstick, like him being a bumbling buffoon who's like yeah. tripping over himself and like, like yelling down the stairs, yelling down the steps. And like, it's just, it, it's also weird because like his scene is one of like, the first we see in the whole movie. I know. And I think it totally throws off. I mean, you start with that great scene of her eating breakfast yeah. in front of Timpanies. It's so silent and austere and kind of contemplative. And then it's like this horrific caricature that is suddenly like this slapstick joke. Yeah. And the tonal shift is bizarre. He's like bumping his head and like... Flashing his camera in his own eyes just to like yell down the steps and yeah it it just and then I'm like okay I don't know what what is the tone of this right now and it like takes a while and I do think the tone of the movie being inconsistent is a problem throughout yeah but I think this especially throws a curveball at you right from the beginning and like it, it's hard to recover from yeah and it's like every twenty minutes or so we get a Mister Yunioshi scene <laughs> in the movie every time he came up. Both, I think both of our stomachs just we dropped. Like, and we're like, I, I would just put a little frowny face in my notes in at every time yes. he came back. I was like, oh, sad. <laughs> there is one single part with him that is kind of funny. And that is he's woken up. I forget whether he gets buzzed uh, from downstairs by Holly or not. He's in the tub and he gets up and then like a whole scene is happening in the hallway. And then there's like a dripping on the banister and they look up. And he's just, like, soaking wet, looking down at them. Yeah. And so I think the visual of, like, the water dripping and seeing him works. And it also only kind of works because he doesn't say anything. Yeah. <laughs> he's just standing there, and he's not speaking. He's not bumble. And, I mean, obviously, it's still a white man in yellow face, and that, like, you know, is, is terrible. But, like, I think if they just avoided the yellow face thing and made him less of a buffoon... And just a little bit more like, hey, he's an annoyed neighbor. Yeah. Like, it could have worked. It could have been fine. I mean, honestly, I feel like they can just cut all this out of the movie. There has to be a cut of this film. <laughs> there has to him. be. Yeah. I mean, 
I'm I'm very much against like retroactively like removing controversial yeah. things from books and movies like like later on. However, this adds nothing. I would not be <laughs> against that. It's so awful. I will say in an interview, uh, uh, like, you know, later on in his life, the director, Blake Edwards, did say he deeply regretted this, this decision. And I mean, I know he could be saying that now to save face or like because of the backlash to it. However, there's plenty of people who make terrible decisions and then years later they still defend it, whether because of the time or like you're being sensitive or whatever. And they like never back down from that position. So I will take for what it's worth him saying, like, this was a mistake. Yeah, it really brings down the film. It really, I know, I know. Like, it kind of just keeps coming up. And every time it comes up, you're just like, oh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, you don't even want to, like, look at the TV or just like. Yeah. <sighs> Let's get into something that makes Mr. Yunioshi really mad, which is Holly having a party. <laughs> Holly throwing a big old party. Or Holly just trying to fit as many people as possible into her apartment. (laughs) Uh, Paul shows up like early-ish and we're introduced to the character of OJ, Mm -hmm. who is, I don't know what his like official job is. Some kind of agent or Hollywood scout or somehow affiliated with the Hollywood scene. He tells Paul that he scouted Holly when she was young and was trying to turn her into a movie star and and says all this stuff about like, oh, you should have heard her accent. It was so like hillbilly, oaky, whatever. Uh, We gave her French lessons. It's very um, Eliza Doolittle, My Fair (laughs) Lady-esque. Okay, yeah. uh, A role that she also starred in and kind of talked about how they made her into this society woman so that she could be in movies and then she just like skipped out on them and was like, I don't want to do that. I'm going to move <laughs> to New York. <laughs> and he's like both, he was like both upset with her, but also like, I guess, liked her enough to either keep in contact or just wanting that connection in case she ever changed her mind or anything. Uh, I wrote after watching OJ speak for two minutes straight, I'm like, he is absolutely on cocaine right now. (laughs) He's just rattling off like this whole entire backstory. This was another scene where it's just like a lot of talking and a lot of backstory. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, eventually this party kind of uh, people, more and more people just start showing up. It's, I think a lot of people that like know her, know Holly, a lot of people that don't know her, that just kind of find their way to the apartment. They are just packed Wall to wall with people. (laughs) And we're introduced to uh, a few other characters in this scene as well. Yes, we get Mag, who is a model and a very, very tall woman. In the book, actually, Mag ends up living with Holly for a time. And they kind of hang out together a lot. But they both seem kind of similar in the way that they're kind of on the hunt for a rich husband, it feels like. Yeah, Holly is also really terrible. I know. She kind of like in the book implies to the group while Mag is in the bathroom that Mag has an STD. Yeah. And then suddenly when Mag comes back, like no one's talking to her. Yeah. Like a really, really shitty mean thing to do to her. Yeah. Uh, And then they end up living together and Holly's basically like, yeah, she's really dumb, but she has money and like I can basically get her to pay like all of our rent. (laughs) And she just does other things that are really shady to her later. Yes. We also meet at this party Rusty Trawler, who is the ninth richest man under 50 in America. And the number one 
uh, silliest named man <laughs> in America as well. You can see that Holly is very eager to meet him and is kind of schmoozing with him. And then we also meet a man from Brazil named Jose who uh, might be interested in Holly. In the book, he seems more interested in Mag at this time. Yeah. So essentially, like, this party is in full swing. People are packed shoulder to shoulder. And we get, like, a lot of um, a lot of gags in yes. the film. I really kind of like this. It I do, too. Me. Yeah. I think at this point, I was still, like, trying to suss out the the tone of the film because I kept kind of being blindsided and like this part was like sillier than I was expecting. But like there are good parts of it. There's one woman who <laughs> we see her at one point laughing like with herself in the mirror. Yeah. Just like cracking herself up. And then we see a few other things and then we go back to her and now she's just sobbing and her like <laughs> mascara is running. And like that was hilarious. Uh, at one point, Paul, the, the phone rings and Paul goes to answer, and he's just crawling on his hands and knees, like, between people's legs, yeah. like, looking for the phone. Uh, and then someone sits on him. Yes. He pull, he puts out his cigarette on the on the floor, like, underneath someone's feet. <laughs> he, like, lifts like, someone's foot up. Yeah. That was good. The only part I didn't like was, and once again, uh, Holly being mean to Mags. Yeah. Mags is really drunk, and she passes out. And... Holly just yells timber and does nothing <laughs> no. to stop this woman from face planting. <laughs> and I was like, oh, come on. Like, that's that's a little much. Yeah, that's too much. Uh, and then Holly and Rusty end up just taking off. The police arrive because Mr. Yunioshi has called the cops on them. Yes. Uh, Paul sees this and grabs Jose because they were they were talking earlier and they escape out the fire escape while the police come in. The police are on their way in. Holly and Rusty are on their way out and they're like clearly asking them like, oh, where's this apartment? And she's like, oh, right up there. Yeah, she just points out. She just rats out her she own party. She totally snitches on them. And I love the idea. Once again, she's just abandoning her own apartment. Yeah. And is like, I have nothing of value there. Like, the police can come and shut down this party. I'm going to be gone mm -hmm. with the ninth richest man. In, <laughs> under 50. Under 50 in New York or in America <laughs> or whatever. So I kind of thought that was a funny ending to the scene as well. Yeah, for sure. In the book at this time, we have Paul kind of reflecting like, yeah, and then I didn't see Holly for a while, but I heard about her exploits. Like, her and Rusty were kind of a couple, and Jose and Mags were a couple, and because... Holly and Mag were living together. Um, they were a foursome and like they went on vacation together. And it kind of seems like Holly might be switching her focus from Rusty to Jose. But it's clear to us that she has plans either way. Right? Yes. <laughs> this is another shitty thing. But like Rusty got in a fight with a couple of sailors who I guess just beat the shit out of him. <laughs> and Holly was like, I mean, he's going to have to wear a back brace for the rest of his life, but like whatever, <laughs> he was in the hospital. And then Mags was in the hospital for like severe sunburn. <laughs> and they just, Jose and her just left them. Yeah, they were and like, they went okay, to, like, bye. They went to another country, right? Like <laughs> yeah. they just like took off. And it's just the idea of Rusty, Rusty just getting his shit fucked up by like, because Rusty is... In the book depicted as, like, very juvenile, very yeah. shitty, like, not a good person. So him getting his, like, shit fixed up by a couple of sailors was, like, very extreme but funny. Yeah. They, she 
They eventually come back from whatever this trip is, and he sees Holly again in the book. And he's talked to her. He talks to her about his writing and how he's writing stories again. And they have this fight in the book about his writing, where she criticizes his writing. This is where she's tanning, trying to keep yeah. up her tan from her vacation, and he's like oiling her up. Yeah, I really love this scene in the book because. She's critiquing his writing and just being like, what's it about? Like, it's just about people and there's no focus. And he's like, okay, well, what should I write then? And she's like, I don't know. Like, what about Wuthering Heights? And he's like, you mean the masterpiece? Yeah. Wuthering Heights? I should write that? Like, what do you mean? And she was like, oh, I love that movie. And he's like, the movie? Like, we're not (laughs) even talking about the book? And I just, I love that they're disagreeing about this thing where they're not even on the same page about what they're talking about. Yeah. And on one hand, like, clearly Holly is not approaching it from the angle that he's approaching it from. She's like, I don't know, just write something wildly successful that people like. Yeah. And he's trying to, like, actually write something that he finds meaningful. And even though he kind of knows she doesn't know what she's talking about, he's still getting annoyed by it, too, and you understand why. Yeah. I just think it's, like, a great example of two people just in an argument and not connecting yeah. about what they're even arguing about, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think that can be hard to convey sometimes. Yeah, and, and this is a fight that is shown later in the movie, but in a totally different context, yeah. right? She says the famous line, like, it'll take you four seconds to get to the door. You better get there in two. Like, however yes. she says that. Yeah. I did want to bring something up here, though, about the book um, talking about problematic things. We have uh, repeated use of the N-word yep. in this book. And then we also have the repeated use of Bulldike. Yep. It's brought up like four or five times. It's brought up a lot. Like a lot. Like Holly always brings it up. Like she's always calling people this name. She's always referencing like, oh, I think this person is is a lesbian and using that kind of derogatory language. And she talks about um, the reason I'm bringing it up here is because she talks about um, him writing about black people yeah. and uses the N word. And it's it happens in other parts, too. I think Holly is the one that's always using that language. But it's also worth noting, like the time that this was written. I mean, Truman Capote grew up for a time in like Alabama. Right. Yeah. And so it's just really unfortunate. And I don't feel like it's necessarily written as a bad thing. And Holly is just kind of able to say what she wants because she's so like eccentric and weird. Right. And it's sort of written off, but I just found it really kind of upsetting to read these portions. And it's one of those instances where it's not just like, yeah, the vocabulary used uh, to describe race from this time is like, obviously not (laughs) up, up to par, not up to standard. But it's also just the fact that, like, black people in the story, I mean, not that there are any characters that are black, really, um, but they're they're just othered in general. Like, characters will just be mentioned, like, not that they use the word black, but like, oh, like a couple of black children ran out and like did this thing or like, oh, my 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 black nanny growing up. Like, it's just always mentioned when it does not need to be at all. Right. Yeah. And it's just that idea of like. Black people are always defined by that quality, by the color of their skin in this story. And it's like always mentioned. And I don't know. It just I always feel conflicted about like discussing this when we discuss old books. Yeah. Because I'm like, 
Yeah, I don't want to like, like, I want to come at it from a perspective of like, well, yeah, it was written in. When was the book written? 1958. 58. Like, I, I get like, it's not going to be the most like either politically correct or like use the right verbiage. But on the other hand, it like I think it's worth pointing out and addressing when it comes up because it can be like. Well, and it's not just the words, right? It's the context. Well, yes. Yeah. You know, and, and like you were saying, and I feel the same way about how, you know, lesbians are discussed. Yeah. Right. And I mean. Truman Capote was an openly gay man, and yet here he is writing a character that's very derogatory towards people who are homosexual, at least women, right? Yeah, and that was one of those terms where, like, I don't know if him using, like, uh, the D word to describe lesbians, like, I don't know if that was more of an accepted term from that time, like, maybe within the queer community, I'm not sure. Like, I don't fully, obviously it doesn't um, read the same now, but I don't fully know the context of that as much as like, you know, the words he's using to describe black people and, and everything else. So I don't know. It, it really it does really stand out reading it today. Yeah. And it can be like, come on, Holly. <laughs> yeah, I just don't love Holly's cavalier attitude towards these things. And at one point she tells Paul that like in the book, Oh, yeah, I told Mag that I'm a lesbian. She doesn't use that word. Uh, so that she wouldn't think that anything went on with me and Jose. Like, and, yeah. and I'm like, what are you? Like, <laughs> what? what's wrong with you? Yeah. It's, it's just so messed up. It, on, in one way, she feels like she's both um, open-minded. You know, at one point she says, she implies that she's bisexual, maybe. And that she says, like, I mean, I think everyone is. Yeah. Once again, she's not using this verbiage, but like, I I think everyone is a little bit. And like, that's a pretty progressive idea. The idea that like sexuality is a spectrum. Right. And a lot of people are more gray than they would admit. Uh, But then she's just like lying about her own sexuality so she can like steal someone else's. Uh, boyfriend. Yeah. And then like being like, who wants to read about black people? Yeah. And I'm like, Holly, (laughs) Holly, come on. Yeah. It's just, it's not great. (laughs) Okay. So we have some more of Holly's backstory revealed at this portion in the story in the book and the movie, because we have the introduction of the character of Doc. Yes. In the film, it's actually 2E when she visits Paul, who's like, there's a man standing outside. I've seen him for two days now. I think my husband mm, yeah. hired like a detective maybe yeah. to see if like I'm, you know, sleeping with you, which I am. <laughs> and so Paul is like, let me go kind of check this out. Like, I'll, I'll I'll find out what's going on. Whereas in the book, he just notices that there's a guy lingering around. Yeah. And in the movie, it's super ominous. Like he goes for a walk and the guy just follows him. And then he's in the park and the guy's still following him. And the music is very ominous. Once again the tone of this movie i'm I'm like like, what is this now i feel like we're in a thriller yeah eventually he the man kind of sits beside him or strikes up a conversation and we find out the truth we find out that he he's from texas and he's here to find holly Mm -hmm. and he's like oh she ran away from home uh years ago and you're like oh is this her dad yeah Paul says that. He's like, oh, you must be her father because you're like 50, right? And he's like, no, she's my wife. Yeah. And he's like, oh, her real name's Lula May. <laughs> the most southerny made up. Yeah. Lula May. Uh, it gets worse because he talks about, oh, yeah, you know, 
back in the day we got married. She was going on 14 at the time. So just to be clear, going on 14 is code for she's 13. She's 13. As if that makes it better or worse, Ian. I'm just like, what? I I didn't even hear. I just heard 14 and I was like, what? And then like I, we were talking about it later and you said something about like how she was going on 14. I was like, going on 14? <laughs> like somehow that like. No, no, that's like what a six year old tells you, right? Yes. They're like, I'm six and a half, right? They're like, I'm almost seven, right? <laughs> Not someone that you married and had sex with. I, I don't even, Not a child. And I don't even think he was saying it to like excuse his behavior, but it's also, it's just so funny. Like it's so bad to be like, I mean, she was going on 14. Like yeah. to say that is just so almost laughable if it wasn't so awful. And then it gets even worse because he tells us how he met her. He's like, oh yeah, my uh, daughter found them, her and her brother Fred, stealing our eggs or chickens or stealing food. They were half-starved kids just, like, rolling around because their parents had died and they had run away from some, like, family they were staying with because they were treating them so poorly, so skinny and starved, and then I just decided to marry her. I was like, here's a girl with, like, no family, no, like, ability. No one to protect her. Totally vulnerable. I'm going to make her my wife. And Doc is later described by Holly as being, like, a kind man. And I who, loved him. Who, who wants to, like, fix things, fix people, fix animals. He's got such a kind heart. And this is one of those things that drives me fucking crazy. Because, like, okay, this is a character that, as an author, you are creating. So, like, I'm not even saying that he isn't a kind man. Or he didn't do these things in some weird form of kindness. But, like, statistically and realistically speaking, a man... A grown man who marries a 13-year-old girl is not doing it because he's kind. No. He's doing it because he's a she's predator. vulnerable. He's a predator. He has all the power in a situation. He's, like, a literal pedophile. Like, all of those things. So it just drives me crazy when it's like, oh, no, he was actually, like, really kind and cool, you know? Yeah, I really don't like the way that this character is portrayed in the book and the movie. Because he's like, oh, he's like so Southern and harmless and he has that folksy quality to him, right? And like Holly, when Holly sees him again, she reacts very much like, oh, Doc. And it's like hard for her. She does, you know, say like, I can't go back with you, but and I'm not that same person anymore. But like, she cares about him and and she likes him and she is saying goodbye to him, but she's like, oh, but, you know, you have a, a place in my heart, Doc. And I'm like, this is so messed up. Yeah. It's one of those things where, like, it's not flippantly thrown out in the way that, like, I, I think it informs her character to a degree. Like, clearly, she was a young girl who, even though whatever, she agreed to be married or whatever, like, she found herself in this domestic situation that... Even though no matter how much he says she was happy, like she clearly found she found herself in a cage or confined to the situation to the point where she felt she needed to leave. And she ran away. And that's a really big part of her character is this like not wanting to be trapped, wanting to like either gain status or power. Right. Like by marrying the right man or like, you know, using what she can to like kind of gain gain power or the ability to like take care of herself right yeah uh so like 
I'm not saying that it didn't like inform her character at all, but like it's so horrible and tragic and it's so frustrating once again talking about reading something from a modern perspective it's so frustrating that paul or nobody else is like what happened to you yeah was awful yeah and this it should not be excused like you should go to therapy you were abused <laughs> and when uh doc is like hey i need you to like tell her that i'm here and and kind of make an introduction for me Instead, to have Paul be like, actually, I'm just going to call the cops. <laughs> yeah. We kept making jokes about that, yeah. about Paul being like, yeah, sure. Just follow me into like this like secluded part of the forest real quick. Yeah. Or like, I'm just going to go up and get her. <laughs> and then he just calls the cops. Get immediately. The, get the I'm like, here. throw this man in prison. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she does like go to the bus station with him in the movie. Paul goes with them and tells Doc, like, I can't go back with you. You know, I'm not the same person anymore. She has this whole analogy about, like, you can't tame a wild thing and her being kind of like a wild thing. And then we're given the information in the movie that their marriage was annulled and he can't get over it. In the book, she's just like, I mean, it probably wasn't legal because I was 13. So I haven't bothered to look into it. (laughs) And I'm like, valid. Probably, yeah. I think if you're in that situation, you can just leave. And I don't think many people are going to, like, force you to go back. Exactly. OK, let's let's move on from all these, like, controversial, <laughs> uh, problematic, topics, problematic things that haven't aged well. Get back into the story. Uh, they both go to a bar after sending Doc back to Texas and they get drunk. I love in the film they go to a strip club. Yeah, it's very random. And, but I was also shocked by... I mean, you don't actually, like, see anything, but you can tell the woman is stripping. Yeah. And Holly is, like, really into it. Yeah, she's, she's like, like, do you think I could, I This could be a career for me, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they both get really drunk, and in the film, they go back to, to her apartment, and she is just sloppy, sloppy drunk. And this is kind of where they get into an argument in the film, because she makes her intentions clear that she still plans on marrying Rusty Trawler. Yes, or someone of his type. She wants to marry for money. And she mentioned, she's like, listen, I need to have enough money for my brother. My brother's getting out of the army soon, and I want us to be able to live together. I want to provide for him. And this is the best way for me to do that. And It's interesting because Paul gets super angry and annoyed at her for this. And she's like, are you judging me? Like, are you (laughs) judging me right now? And then she's literally like, oh, uh, what's her name? Leaves you plenty of cash. Like, you should be used to that by now. And that's their fight. And I definitely feel like in the book, like Holly was kind of being maybe too much in criticizing his writing, right? Yeah. But in this version, I'm like, I mean, Holly's in the right. Like, he might not agree with her decision to marry for money, but, like, it's not up to him. No, yeah. no. And clearly he is now coming at this from a a personal stance because he's obviously developing some kind of feelings for her, right? Yeah. So they get in this fight and that kind of, like... For, for the meantime, their their friendship is kind of disintegrated. Yes. They make up very quickly, though, because uh, the newspaper reports that Rusty Trawler gets married to Mag. And uh, this happens in the book as well, just a little later in the story. And so, you know, Paul has just found out that he's getting a short story published and he's going to get paid for it. And 
Holly is like, oh, you know, forget Rusty, whatever. Let's go out. <laughs> let's celebrate. Let's forget all of that. Let's celebrate your winnings. And they have kind of this beautiful day together. Yeah, they go out. Uh, they stop at the library. And it, it's kind of a funny scene because he has like a book published. And so they look him up in the ca- card catalog and like. Uh, <laughs> they get shushed by a librarian. Oh, my God, Adina. The librarian shushing trope. <laughs> it's too much. Drives me crazy. It's like, be more original. <laughs> yeah. Everyone does this. I mean, this is the 60s, so. I know. But like, I think about more now when I see it in modern stories. I'm just like, it drives sure. me crazy. Uh, they go to tiffany's yes and he wants to buy her something but he only has like ten dollars on him and so they're trying to find something at tiffany's for only ten dollars yes we have such a great scene with the tiffany's store employee where he's trying to accommodate him he's just this very like dry british man yeah um and they eventually are like oh we can have something engraved and he's like what about this cracker jack ring that your ex-husband gave me (laughs) out of a Cracker Jack box. And the Tiffany's sales clerk is like, wow, do they really still have prizes in Cracker Jack boxes? And he's like, yeah. And then he, the, the store clerk gets like real sentimental for a moment. He's like, it's really comforting to know that they still do that. Right. Like a sense of consistency in this crazy world. Yes. He says it's a sense of continuity. (laughs) (laughs) He gets real like philosophical for a moment and uh, agrees to, I am convinced that like they had, they had to write a scene with a very nice accommodating clerk. Since they're actually representing like this (laughs) Tiffany store. That was probably like the agreement for them to be featured in this movie. Yeah. Although I'm sure it was great publicity for them. Oh my God. I'm sure. And then they also go to, like a real kind of a cheap like five and dime store and they go to steal something just like one item. And I love how she explains how she used to steal things when she was a kid and she doesn't anymore, but she does from time to time just to keep her hand in as yeah. she puts it. <laughs> just to hone the skill. Yeah. So she doesn't lose it. Yeah. They end up stealing uh, these dog and cat Halloween masks, but there's the whole, this whole part of them trying to steal other stuff and people are watching them. And I feel like it goes on maybe a little too long. I would say a lot too long. <laughs> like the idea is funny. They're kind of like pretending like they're doing a heist almost. Yeah. And like people are watching, but like it's not that funny and it goes on for quite a while. Yeah, to way too long. They go back to his apartment, though, and have sex or at least it's very heavily implied. I am surprised by how... How despite this movie being made in 1961, it felt like it was able to get away with a lot. Like them having sex feels pretty, pretty strongly implied. And I mean, they go to a strip club at one point. They're they're both getting drunk, like in the middle of the day. And Holly's having men over. Yeah. Like it doesn't really feel like, I don't know, the kind of haze Code era type like censorship that you're used to seeing with like older movies like this. Like it feels like it's able to talk about a lot of mature things and deal with like a lot of mature subjects that you're not used to from movies of this time. I agree. And actually, like Truman Capote ran into some issues getting this uh, book published, actually. And he had an agreement with a magazine to publish it. And they were like, oh, actually, we don't want to because it's too racy. Wow. For us. I mean, there were parts that I was surprised about with the book. Like yeah. I'm talking about Holly being like, yeah, everyone's a little bisexual, right? <laughs> or like... um. 
uh, like just her discussing her being kind of an escort. And yeah. like at one point, at one point they say fuck, which kind of shocked me mm-hmm. and just some general swearing. So yeah, there was stuff in the book too that surprised me. Yeah. And I mean, also for Audrey Hepburn, who was kind of typecast a little bit at this time as playing this kind of innocent woman, it was definitely a risk for her. Mm. And in fact, uh, Truman Capote originally wanted Marilyn Monroe. Yes, I read that. To play Holly Golightly. Um, But Marilyn Monroe was advised by, I think, her agents or her production company that if she took the role, it would look bad for her. Because she's, I mean, basically playing a prostitute. Yeah. Like one step away from being a prostitute. So she turned it down because of that. And for Audrey Hepburn to go into this role. I mean, I think they definitely have a different sensibility. Audrey Hepburn kind of adds this, like, innocence to the role just because of her her looks and her general vibe, right? Where Marilyn Monroe, I think, maybe would have lent more of a sensuality. She exudes much more like sex than Audrey Hepburn does. She has more of a classy kind of vibe to her, I'd say. I mean, as far as like how they were marketed, I would would say. Yeah, but it's interesting to consider that. Yeah, apparently Capote is like very upset that Marilyn Monroe couldn't be in it. And like, and that Audrey Hepburn felt very like self-conscious about that. Like Mm -hmm. she knew he wanted Marilyn and like anytime Truman Capote was on set, she felt like nervous about it. Yeah. Yeah. um, So they have sex and it's very clear that Paul is into Holly. And we have this part where he has a confrontation with his woman to E and he finally breaks it off with her. I like this scene a lot, too, because 2E, you can tell that she's like, uh, like, you're finally doing it. I knew you would at some point. But she's also, she's acting like it was inevitable, but she's also not really taking him seriously. Yeah. Like, she writes him a big check to go on vacation, she put it. Like, basically, like, I still have you in my pocket. Mm -hmm. And, like, I know that and you should know that, too. But he seems... Paul seems very adamant that, like, this he's is He's cutting over. all ties. Yeah. yeah. And we find out later in the movie that he's actually moved out of that apartment. Yes. And, like, gotten a job yeah. and has kind of actually made steps to sever himself from her patronage and her power, right? Um, But he's doing all this because he's in love with Holly. And so he's trying to find her. She's, like, not around for some reason. And then he finally finds her in the library. And she's reading about South America And he's like, where have you been? I've been trying to find you. And she's very, very cold towards him. And he's like, what are you reading? What is this about? And she implies that like, oh, I'm trying to go after Jose now. He's actually super rich. And if I learn about South America, I can ingratiate myself with him. Yeah. And this is like very, I think, heartbreaking because... Uh, Rusty Trawler is married now and like he's out of the picture and they just had this great day together and they like probably had sex together and like, you know, uh, Paul is kind of riding this high and feeling like they have this real connection and then to discover that she's still on her mission to marry a rich man is like really, I think, devastating for him. And I like you do feel for him. For sure. Unfortunately, he kind of goes on this rant to her about how he owns her. Yeah. And and look, I think the phrasing is bad because later they have this same discussion and he kind of expands on it more. Yes. Essentially he says like when you love someone, you own each other. Yes. Like there's kind of this sense of like mutual belonging. Yes. Yeah. But he doesn't say that here. He no. only says I own you. <laughs> <laughs> and exactly cuz like anytime you've ever said 
my darling, my dear, my love, right? Or like my Ian, which I've said to you. It's like you are claiming someone, right? And like there is an ownership in that. But yeah, just on its own being like... I own you. I was like, ooh, this is not the move, strong, my guy. Strong words right out of the gate. Also, they're in the library. I know. <laughs> like, do not do this in a library. The librarians and the people there do not want to be in on your drama. Like, please. No. <laughs> like, you know where she lives. Just wait for her there. Don't have this She has here. to come back eventually. People are trying to read and surf the internet <laughs> in 1961. <laughs> like, do this somewhere else. Yes. Uh, he does, before leaving, though, give her $50 for the powder room. Yes. Just as a kind of a final... A diss. A diss, right? <laughs> uh, which is a pretty good diss if that's what your goal is. Yeah, but that's like all the money he has. <laughs> <laughs> he gives her the check that he got for his story. Yeah. He doesn't even have it in cash. He has to give her a check. <laughs> he probably goes home and immediately calls and can, can you send another check? Can I you lost cancel it. that check? <laughs> cancel that check. Send me a new one. <laughs> Uh, we do have another scene, though, that quickly, I guess, maybe makes them friends again, or it makes things more peaceful between them, where Holly finds out some devastating news and wrecks her apartment. Yeah, I mean... Throwing bottles. I love as soon as Paul enters the apartment, she, like, hurls a bottle right at the door. Like, it's very violent. She does pull a tablecloth out from beneath the cat. I'm angry at how the cat was treated. I'm very upset. I was upset <laughs> at this point. Don't even get me started at the end, but but do. Uh, yeah, I was so mad when she, like, kind of throws the cat. Yeah. And you don't quite know what's going on, and... Jose, Jose is, is there. Jose is there, and... Paul reads the telegraph that she received and finds out that her brother Fred was killed in the war. In the book, it's in the war. Yeah, no, yeah, because in the uh, in the film, it's like a jeep accident. Yes. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But it's still in the army. Yeah, he's in the army. I guess an army jeep accident. I don't think of jeeps driving that fast, but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, And so he kind of. Gets her to calm down. But then I like that he kind of just goes over to Jose and is like, hey, you have like a and this is in the in the film. He's like, you have like a ranch or something in Brazil. Right. And he's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, OK, take her there. You you better get in. the You better yeah. you better get in there. You got this man in the bedroom. You yeah. got this. I'm going. I'm not dealing with this. Yeah, definitely kind of putting it on Jose and being like, all right, this is your responsibility now. If you're with her, then you handle this. Like, if you're going to marry her, that's your responsibility. Like, this is on you. I'm done with it. It's interesting, though, because on the surface, her motivation for wanting to marry someone rich is like, oh, I'm doing this for Fred, right? Yeah. And then her brother Fred is dead, but she's still kind of wants that right it's not just fred it's for herself as well yeah absolutely and so we get a bit of a time jump here both in book and movie in the movie it's implied that she goes somewhere i don't know if it's brazil uh and in the or in the book it's just time passes essentially and she kind of starts like cooking she's still seeing jose and she kind of seems to like settle into a routine here yeah her apartment is much more furnished and i think it's because jose is living with her or at least staying with her a lot and she's trying to be domestic and to fit what he wants right yeah it definitely feels like in the movie she's knitting (laughs) yeah it definitely feels like she's trying to make herself into a desirable partner for him right she got him on her beauty and now she has to convince him to like take the plunge and actually 
actually marry her. In the book, and I think in the movie too, like the marriage thing hasn't happened yet and there's some doubt as to whether he will actually marry her or not. Yeah, it feels like it's maybe going to happen, but also like when is it going to happen if it is? Uh, Yeah, so things feel a little bit uncertain here. Uh, They decide to go out together in the uh, film. They just go out for dinner together Mm -hmm. in the book. She's like, I'm going to I'm going to go ride a horse in Central Park. I do this from time to time. Yeah, Paul, come with me. Why don't you just come? <laughs> and he's like, uh, I, yeah, OK, OK. It's also worth mentioning in the book that Holly is pregnant at this time. Oh, my God. That's right. Yes, yeah. she's pregnant. I have to say here, not in this scene, but a little bit later, she says that she is and I quote preggers. <laughs> Adina. I know. I guess it goes all the way back, I right? I could not believe <laughs> that I read that word in a book written in, what, the 50s? Yes. Preggers. <laughs> Blew my mind. It really did. It really just, like, I, I, I'll never make fun of, a like, a trendy word ever again <laughs> for fear that it's, like, a hundred years old, right? <laughs> whatever the next YOLO is or whatever. Yeah. Uh, drip anything i'm just gonna be like i don't know how old this word is i'm not i'm I'm keeping my mouth shut (laughs) yeah in the book she's like let's ride horses in central park and i love horses and paul is like okay i don't really ride horses that often (laughs) but sure and she's like trust me it's so easy they're riding through the park and then ian what should happen but a bunch of those no good Children who happen to be black. Yes, just happen to be. Uh, start throwing rocks at them and spook the horse. The horse takes off with Paul on it. It like jumps a gate. It's like going down. It's in the city. It is. It's it just loses its mind and starts like taking off. Uh, Holly like takes takes off after it, trying to like get it to s- slow down. Paul is hanging on for his life. Yeah. A police officer and horseback gets involved. <laughs> they manage to stop it. And I love Paul kind of like gets off the horse and Holly's like, are you okay? Yeah. You seem not okay. And he's like, I'm totally fine. And then he passes out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just like hate this part where they're like, oh, and then a bunch of black children. Like, I know. I ruin know. Ruin everything and like almost kill me. And then like earlier in the book, she was like, yeah, you know, I think. Uh, Jose might be like part black. If you couldn't tell. Yeah, but she says it in like a very weird way. And (laughs) is like, yeah, it's fine though. Like, I don't care. And I'm just like, can we please stop? (laughs) Please let me off this horse. (laughs) For a book that has no main black characters, you talk about black people so much. I know. And if it's not someone who's black, it's someone who's a lesbian or someone who's pretending to be a lesbian or someone she accuses of being a lesbian. I don't know. I I can't handle it. That's the thing. It's like the irony of like no characters like representing this demographic and yet the number of times that it's like brought up for no reason other than to be like kind of of racist in a way that like boomers usually are when they're just like telling a story and they mention that someone's black and you're like, why are you? Please stop. Please. (laughs) I I don't need to know those details if they don't matter. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, this dramatic horse riding scene does not happen in the movie. In fact, they just go out to dinner together and it's very normal. <laughs> and then they go back to the apartment and they are promptly arrested. Yep. Uh, yeah, the, the, the door is unlocked. They walk in. They slap handcuffs on Paul immediately. And uh, 
take take Holly into jail, and they're like, this is the narcotics division. And for some reason, um, Mr. Yuniyoshi is there. Yeah. Like, he's like, that's them. And I'm like, why are the police bringing him along? I don't know. Uh, yeah, so she's, she's brought into jail, and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? I'm like, is this... Like, is this Jose involved in something? Like, wh- what? what's the deal? And then you find out, like, no, obviously, it's Sally Tomato. Yeah, and obviously, the weather reports that she was giving to the lawyer were coded messages on how to continue to dr- run his drug empire while he was behind bars. <laughs> it's snowing in Florida <laughs> yeah. is code for uh, take cocaine to Florida. <laughs> Or whatever. Or whatever it is. Whatever the code was. It's kind of an interesting part in the book here because we actually get like a newspaper article inserted in the story. Oh, yeah. And it's the perspective of them like writing about like, oh, society girl was arrested in her luxurious apartment. And then we have like Paul afterward being like, well, this is what really happened. I was soaking in the tub after my crazy horse ride. And... (laughs) um. Holly was just hanging out in my apartment and like, this is what happened. The police broke in. The police broke in and she got slapped by a police woman because she called her a bull dyke. Like, (laughs) I don't know. God damn it, It Holly. It keeps coming back. It does. It keeps coming back. But we find out in the book that actually Holly has a miscarriage and it's because of the horse riding. Although apparently she tried to imply to the police that it was because the policewoman slapped her very hard. I mean, a cab like. Yeah. <laughs> Go after them, uh, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I mean, like, if you have the ammunition, use Yeah, but it. don't be homophobic. Yeah. Like. <laughs> you can be a cab and then also not homophobic at the same time. But it is really sad that she's gone through this in the book. Obviously, in the movie, this is not part of the story at all. Yeah. Uh it's funny because when this whole arrest about narcotics thing happened, I just, I was at a point in the movie where I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen next. (laughs) Every plot twist is like taking me off guard. I have no idea where this movie's going, but I, I will say that I do like it in a way in terms of, you know, Holly is associating with these shady characters in order to make money, and I'm not even criticizing that, but, like, now she's facing repercussions for being kind of in the orbit of these people. Yeah. Like, she, yes, has been receiving the monetary benefits of being in their society, but now she's receiving the repercussions, too. And I think there's something, like, interesting about that. Yeah. And also to have this thing that you were like, why are we learning about this Sally Tomato and Sing Sing thing? To actually come back and be part of the story. Yeah, it was so random. Okay, it makes sense now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Paul ends up calling O.J. Berman, the Hollywood agent who discovered Holly, um, and asks for his help. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to send the bail money over. Like I'll, I'll figure it out. Like I owe her for something and I want to help her out. He always calls her kid and he's like, I gotta help the kid out. Uh, she's a phony, but she's a real phony, a real true phony. Yeah. So So, they're getting her out. Yeah. So she gets out, she makes bail. And around this time, Jose leaves her. We find out. And I think this kind of makes sense and is interesting. He's, he has aspirations politically in Brazil that he he wants to be the president there. Like yeah. he 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 has his eyes set to the very top. And he's essentially like, I can't marry a woman who is 
like involved in a drug related scandal in the US, like I need to keep my political career in mind. But you also I at least I did had the feeling that like he was probably never going to marry her. Yeah. And this is just his excuse now not to. Well, it's even worse in the book because he doesn't even know that she had the miscarriage. Oh, God, that's right. So he's just well, like abandoning her and his own child. He probably knew she was pregnant, right? Do yeah. We, do we yeah. know for sure? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Because in the letter, he says, like, I wish you and your child the best. Oh, God, that's right. Yeah, he's like, oh, I wish you and your child, not my <sighs> child. That motherfucker. That piece of shit. Yeah. God damn it. Yeah, God, I <laughs> forgot about that aspect of it, too. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Jose. He dips. Huge piece of shit. Dips out. <laughs> And now Holly is like, you know what? (sighs) Things aren't looking too great here. (laughs) I already have a plane ticket to Brazil. Maybe now's a good time to just leave the country. (laughs) And Paul is like, do not do that. Yeah. Do not leave the country. If you do, when you're involved in this, like, trial, like, even if you don't get charged directly. Like, Like, you can't come back. Yeah, you're involved and you can't leave or else you won't be able to come back. And she's just very adamant, like, no, I've decided I'm moving, I'm leaving. Uh, You can drive me to the airport if you want. Mm -hmm. And so this is uh, approaching the finale and where we will split off. I think we'll talk about the uh, film first and how it ends. Yeah. So Paul and Holly are in a cab together. Paul has brought Kat with him. For Holly, along with, like, some other possessions. And they are uh, heading to the airport. And this is where... Well, he wants to take her to a hotel to lie low. Okay. And she's like, no, take me to the airport. And so this is where they're arguing, like, she's like, I'm still going to go to Brazil and all that. And then she's like, pull the taxi over. And the taxi gets pulled over. And she takes Kat, takes him out of the bag, throws him on the sidewalk in the rain... And then leaves him. Yeah. And has the taxi drive drive away. away. I've, I don't know if I've ever been more mad (laughs) in a movie in my life. It's very heartbreaking. It's raining, Ian. It's raining. And apparently Audrey Hepburn has said this is like the worst thing I've ever had to do in a movie. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, I hated doing this. And I mean, I, I get it. From a character perspective, like she's all about having no connections, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm severing connections. Like even with the cat before, she's like, we don't. I don't own the cat. I don't name the cat. We don't, you know. So her, even though her leaving the cat in the rain feels like so heartless. Yeah, it feels almost inevitable, or it feels like justified by her characters. So I'm not saying it isn't justified. No, it feels like a moment like this makes sense for her character. But I'm still really mad about it. Yeah, and also <laughs> Paul is mad about it. And, he's, yeah. and he kind of tells her off and he's like, you know, I love you and I just want to love you. And he he explains more about owning, right? And says like, when you love someone and they love you back, like you own each other. And like, there is a little bit of owing and owning, right? But that's like what makes life beautiful. And he kind of tells her and says, you're so worried about being trapped and in a cage that you don't realize that you've built this cage around yourself in order to stay like quote unquote free right yeah and unattached right you're boxing yourself away you're hiding yourself away and you're cutting yourself off from love and having a great cat right (laughs) yes (laughs) <laughs> and so he goes back for the cat first. Yeah. Which good on him. Yeah. And he's looking for the Throws cat. Throws her the ring. Oh, yeah. The Cracker Jack ring he yeah. got engraved. 
And so then she follows and they're both searching for the cat in an alley in the rain. I, I was in such suspense. I'm I know. Like, they please. better find this fucking cat. I'll be yeah. so mad if they don't. It takes a minute, but they do hear it meow and they do save it. Yes. And then they kiss and embrace and hug in the rain. With the cat between them. With the cat. R- what more smushed, could you want? <laughs> smushed right between it. And the cat's probably like, I almost got away. I was almost out of it. <laughs> yes, it's very romantic. Shall we go to the book, Ian? Yes. Uh, they are on their way to the airport. And the same thing happens. Uh, she has, they're in a limo in the book. She has the limo pull over and she drops the cat off yeah. in, in a neighborhood. Just drives away. And then a second, a little bit later, she's like, wait, stop. And then she goes back and tries to find the cat. And she can't find him. Yeah. And I really wanted to, like, quote what she said here. She says, um... Well, first, he, after she throws the cat out, uh, Paul says, well, you are. You are a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And then she goes back for the cat. um, And she says to him, oh, Jesus, God, we did belong to each other. He was mine. And then she said, I'm very scared. Yes, at last, because it could go on forever. Not knowing what's yours until you've thrown it away. So that idea of like her having this realization that it the cat was hers, they did belong together, and but she's already lost that chance. Yeah. And she can't find the cat, and then she just has to get back in the cab or the limo and go back to the airport. It's very sad. And yeah, but she still goes to the airport and um and and takes off for Brazil. Yeah. And then you know, a little while later, Paul receives a postcard from her. I kind of forget, like, the gist of it. Like, Just that she's, like, shacked up with some guy. Yeah, and <laughs> she's she's still on the hunt for a rich man. Yeah. And she doesn't have a permanent residence yet, but when she does, she'll let him know. And then he never hears from her again. And, you know, the, the flash forward that we start with is, like, maybe 10 or 15 years after they part. And so... You know, he doesn't know what's happened to her. And we hear, you know, a couple last things from him where he says, I did go back and try to find the cat. And one day I did find him. And he was sitting in the window of a very warm and cozy looking house. Yeah. And I think he probably has a name now and a home. And I hope that Holly has found the same. I really like this ending. Yeah. I like, um... It feels realistic that they wouldn't find the cat. Yeah. And but I like that bit of hopefulness that like he sees it in a window and obviously that extending to like what he hopes for Holly. That yeah. like she too will find a place to call home and find whatever it is that she's looking for. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really funny because watching the film, everything that was happening from her fleeing and her leaving, even to her dropping the cat off, felt inevitable yeah like it felt like this is where this character was going like this is where it was inevitably leading and then they like she gets told off by paul and then they go back and then they find the cat and then she's like i love you and then they kiss in the rain and Mm -hmm. i'm like it i don't know if i buy it yeah like i feel like her tendencies are so ingrained at this point that i don't believe that she would change like this and like could they make it work yeah i just and and reading the book 
and seeing how the book was different, I'm like, this feels right. Like, it's obviously sadder. Yeah. It's more um, melancholy. I would have liked it if she didn't get rid of the cat and still went off to Rio on her own. Yeah. But the cat, for me, it's too far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get it. I get it. It's It feels like such an extreme heartless thing. I mean, I love in the book that he's just like, you're a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, suddenly he's defending the cat. Like, yeah. how could you do that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's really, I think, it, I don't know. I I get it. Like, if she's if she's truly sticking to this, like, mindset and this ideology, it feels like she has to throw the cat away. But then that's either a, a pivoting point Right. Either she fully commits to that or she realizes like how heartless she yeah. is actually being. So I, I kind of do like it, even though it's so traumatic to see her <laughs> throw the cat out of the car. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I just think that the book throughout and even in the movie, too, she just feels like a character who. <sighs> she is aimless. She is trying to figure out what she wants. I don't. No, I don't think she'll ever actually, like, figure it out necessarily. No. And I like the book committing more to that idea than the film trying to give us, like, the Hollywood ending of it all. Yes, Ian. So here we are. Oh, God. In the discussion about which is better. Yeah. We're already in it. You've already brought us here. I I, I stepped into it. (laughs) And honestly, I don't know if I've... I think I have something in mind, but I want to hear your thoughts first. I mean, I like both of them, and I also dislike both of them in certain ways. Like, there's stuff I like about the book, and there's stuff I don't like about the book. And then the movie, I think, is kind of totally all over the place, but there's things I like about it. I think, ultimately, I slightly prefer the movie. Okay. Um, Yeah, it's a little bit of a cheesy ending, but... You know, she gets to be with a cat, and maybe that's all I care about, Ian. Maybe the cat is all that I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, I, I like Audrey Hepburn in this. I think she adds a lot to the character, makes her a lot more likable. And the romance is maybe a bit unrealistic, but I do think Paul's character in the movie also has, like, his own struggles and faults that maybe, like, they could make it work between them. I don't know. Yeah, it's really hard to say. Like, in the movie, I felt mostly disappointed in the movie. I think at the start, I found Holly to be, like, mostly annoying and kind of a little too much, right? The whole, like, manic pixie dream girl aspect seemed to be really front-loaded at the beginning. Yeah. And it made me kind of not like her that much. And Paul was kind of just a blank slate, for the most part, I liked the addition the movie made of Paul's relationship with E2. Uh, 2E? 2E. <laughs> I was almost just going to say she sounds like a, a Star Wars droid. <laughs> um, w- w- their relationship, uh, I think, adds an element. But th- the tone was just, I don't know, at points it felt really melodramatic or thrillery. At other points it felt like really goofy. Um, the plot was just kind of like very meandering in a lot of ways. I think the lens of the book being kind of like looking back on his relationship with her. Yeah. And this kind of, um, 
I don't know, a story of a charismatic girl he met that he kind of had a crush on, but they never like really did anything. Uh, and then she kind of disappeared and he's maybe always thought about her. I think that perspective kind of adds a lot to the story. Yeah. Because by the end of the film, I was like, I don't know if I buy this, but I think the book, the book lands a lot more solidly at the end for me mm -hmm. and maybe makes the ride a little bit more worth it. So I think I might want to go book on this. Yeah, I just feel like I can appreciate the movie's like style and also it's like place in kind of like pop culture, you know? Yeah. Um, And I really like Audrey Hepburn in it. And I did enjoy the book and I think it really kind of does what it sets out to do. Yeah. And I appreciate that about it. But I think maybe the movie is just a little bit more enjoyable. Minus the Mr. Unioshi scenes. <laughs> yes. I mean, the, the movie does have a lot of scenes that are like charming and funny and like on their own are good scenes. I just don't think they're strung together very well and like mm -hmm. a very good movie. Maybe now that I have like, because like I said, I've never seen this before and I knew nothing about it going in. Yeah. Maybe now that I have a sense of what the movie's about and what what I'm getting into, maybe I'd enjoy it more on a rewatch. I agree. Possibly. It's not like a, it's not like a home run for a film. I, I'm kind of, I mean like this is breakfast at Tiffany's. This is like, uh, an undisputed classic, right? Yeah. But in what way, I guess? Like, in that, in, in its quality, or it's just its contribution to pop culture? It, it It's showcase of Audrey Hepburn as an mm -hmm. actor? Like, I guess I've never really thought about, like, what is this movie actually known for? And maybe in that way, I was just kind of disappointed to be, like... Like, we watched Roman Holiday. It's hard not to compare it to Roman it Holiday. It really... Like, I knew nothing about that movie going in. I fucking love that movie. That movie is phenomenal. Yeah. It's so funny. It's so charming. The ending is amazing. Uh, it, it, it's like a 10 out of 10. It's so good. Yeah. And like, yeah, that movie is, is obviously a classic too, but I figured I'm like, well, Breakfast at Tiffany's more like known, right? Just by name alone. I'm like, surely it'll be like close to being as good as that, right? And I just thought it really fell short, but maybe that's my fault for having too high of expectations. I mean, it, it is kind of mixed, but, you know, I felt a little mixed on the on the book as well. So I think it's fine for us to disagree. I mean, this is one of the situations where we're both kind of in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> so I think each of us picking one to, like, balance out the decision makes sense anyway. So. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, a book for Ian. Yes. And a movie for me. Yeah. Should we do a uh, lightning round? <laughs> yes. Let's do lightning. So first up for lightning. Uh, so that song, at one point, Holly is singing. Uh, and playing guitar at her windowsill and Paul overhears and listens. And in the movie, the song she's singing and playing is Moon River, which I guess was written for the movie and written for uh, Audrey Hepburn to sing and perform because mm -hmm. um, she's not a trained singer. And so it was kind of written for her specific range. And after like a test screening of the film, one of the producers like, yeah, no, it went really well. The movie's great. Uh, obviously, we're going to get rid of that, like, silly song scene first. And I guess Audrey Hepburn, like, stood up on the table and was like, over my dead body, you're getting <laughs> rid of that scene. And for whatever reason, was like, I am taking a hard stance on keeping this scene in the movie. I mean, I do think it's a more vulnerable scene with her. Yeah, yeah. Kind of showing her at least 
feeling like she isn't being watched by anyone, even though she is. Yes. Yeah. And just a kind of a moment like the guitar or singing never comes up again for her character. So it's just kind of this little insightful thing. I like it. Yeah, I like it, too. I just think it's so funny that they <laughs> wanted to cut it and then she's like, absolutely no. not. <laughs> um, I have to mention uh, and we didn't get a chance to talk about it in the episode, but I mean, the fashion in this movie is so iconic and has really become the thing that people think about when they think of this movie, right? And this was actually one of the first, not the first, but one of the first movies that like a major fashion brand actually contributed pieces towards. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm probably going to butcher this. Uh, Zavanchi is the um, French fashion brand. It's spelled like Givenchy, but I know that it, it's actually like Zivanchi, okay, I think is how you okay. say it. Um, contributed the two little black dresses that Audrey Hepburn wears in this movie. And this kind of really cemented the legacy of the little, bra- little black dress, right? Interesting, okay. As this yeah. being like a cornerstone of like this stylish woman's outfit and, you know, wardrobe. And the way that she styles it, like with the pearls, and then she styles later with like the hat, right? Just super iconic and very... Very recognizable, of course, later with her um, and her cigarette holder. The cigarette holder, the absurdly long cigarette holder. Yeah, just very, very, very iconic and definitely, I think, what people think of the most when they think of this movie. That is so true and so funny. I recently saw a TikToker discussing how, like, unique costumes can really cement films just in the social... Like, in the zeitgeist, right? Like, in the discussion. Even if the movie's, like, meh. Right. Or there are movies that are decent, but people forget about. And he argues that it's because there's nothing like visually iconic about it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like you said, when people think of Breakfast at Tiffany's, they think of Audrey Hepburn in the black dress with the pearl chokers, Mm -hmm. the cigarette holder, the sunglasses, maybe the hair up, the cat even as like a prop. It's very true. For sure. I read for my second lightning round that George Peppard was apparently very difficult to work with. And that he was an early adopter, or maybe not early, but like when it was more uncommon, of the method acting Mm. approach. And that a lot of people, including the director, did not get along with him. Oh, no. He kind of refused to like take notes on his performance and just kind of played scenes out the way he wanted to. And it kind of like made it really difficult for people to work with him. And Audrey Hepburn found it difficult to work with him. And I just think it's really, I mean, I think method acting is funny in general, but like, especially when for it, this movie, for such a flat character, it really cracks me up. Like, okay, if Daniel Day-Lewis is playing like an oil baron <laughs> with a gr- ridiculous accent, like if he wants to method act <laughs> that, like I get that more, right? Something really over the top or like really yeah. intense. But when it's just a dude <laughs> being like a normal guy, but he's like, no, you have to call me Paul. Oh my gosh. That cracks me up. And also, I find this interesting as an extension of, like, Audrey Hepburn, I think, has talked about how she thought she was kind of miscast for this role. Mm-hmm. That she kind of thought she was maybe being typecast a little bit, and she didn't have, like, she thought Marilyn Monroe would have been better. And I just find it interesting that, like, George Peppard wouldn't take notes and, like, was being difficult to work with, and people thought he wasn't doing a good job at points, and Audrey Hepburn wasn't sure she was doing a good... And it was just, like, a lot of behind-the-scenes controversy going on. Yeah, especially with having the author being very publicly against your casting. Like, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. For sure. 
Uh, last for lightning round, I just want to mention a little bit of Rusty Trawler slander in both the book and the movie. In the book, it's kind of thrown out that like, oh, uh, Rusty Trawler, who's known for his pro-Nazi sensibilities. Oh my God! And yes. this is during World War II that this book <laughs> takes place. In the in the movie, it's like at the present time, which is like the 60s. But I'm like, oh my God. And then in the movie, Holly has this throwaway line when she finds out Rusty's married and he's like, oh yeah, it turns out he doesn't have any money at all. It's just his family money. So, you know, slander on both sides, but definitely a little bit worse in the book. I think it's really funny because like in the book, you understand why Paul doesn't like Rusty or why he doesn't like Holly going after him because he's like, I don't know, a Nazi sympathizer. (laughs) Uh, But in the film, like Rusty is just kind of like not really conventionally attractive. Yeah. And like, we don't know anything about him. And then later Paul is like, you're not going to marry that rusty trawler guy. And I'm like, excuse me, we don't know anything about him. Like, why are we like really anti rusty all of a sudden? Rusty, the Nazi sympathizer. Uh, well, I mean, if, it, if he's a Nazi sympathizer, then by all yeah. means, but we don't know that in the film. Uh, that's it for lightning round. And that wraps up this episode. Thank you so much for listening. This was a really fun one to do. And if you have something that you would like to request and you'd love to hear us discuss, quickest way to do that is to become a patron. And by joining our Patreon, we always, um, prioritize episode requests from our patrons. And then you also get a really fun bonus episode every month from us. We do bonus episodes on like other adaptations tied into like main episodes. We discuss uh, movies, like movie franchises and series and like the Oscars. We do a yearly roundup episode. So a ton of uh, bonus episode content, uh, as well as access to our private discord where we're constantly talking to our listeners and just having interesting discussions. So if any or all of that sounds appealing, please join our Patreon. Yeah, and if you are able to, please uh, give us a star rating or review on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you listen. And thank you so much again for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.